0: Welcome to another episode of Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have a very special guest with us. None other than the renowned Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt and instructor to the instructors, Henry Akins. Henry is a Black Belt under the legendary Hickson Gracie and a former instructor at Hickson's Academy in Southern California. Originally from Oklahoma, Henry now resides in Las Vegas, Nevada and has been training Jiu-Jitsu for 27 years. Henry is a highly respected figure in the BJJ community and has made a huge impact on the art through his teachings and philosophy. He's the founder of Hidden Jiu-Jitsu and has trained some of the top BJJ practitioners and instructors in the world. In this episode, we delve into Henry's journey in the world of BJJ, his teachings, and his philosophy on the art. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn from one of the best in the business. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Please leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month. Yes, less than a dollar. Get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash foreverwhitebelt forward slash subscribe. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at Forever White Belt and check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at tspring, teespring.com forward slash forever-white-belt. Dash dash Check us out on YouTube now at Forever White Belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. they are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Henry Aikens. Henry, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So excited to have you. I've been so looking forward to this. And this is such a a big catch to have you on the show. Oh, awesome. Awesome. As we were mentioning before, I know you're probably spread thin with all all of your uh, things that you have going on. I heard people on other podcasts pleading for you to come to different parts of the globe, I should say, because you seem to be all over the place. We're in Northern California. We would love to have you in Northern California again. I know
1: you're in Southern California, correct? I'm in Las Vegas now. Yeah, I moved three years ago. Thankfully, just pre-COVID, right before COVID made the move, and it was uh, looking, in hindsight, it was a very smart decision. Yeah, I was going to ask, how did you uh, maneuver 2020? Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I I was living in Santa Monica. And um, between my fiance and I, we were paying about $7,000 a month in rent for a 1000 square foot combined. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was actually that's, you know, when I'm saying it was just so uh, in hindsight, it just worked out. We bought a house here in Vegas. And so, you know, we had three times the amount of room and we're paying way less rent. And obviously, no one was working at the time. So she's in the healthcare field. So they were kind of shut down for a few months. And so it was just actually really smart that we had a ton of room, a ton of space. I mean, what was insane with California, they weren't even allowing people to go outside. You know, you mm. had to like go outside and have masks yeah. and just social distance outside. It was kind of insanity. So yeah, I'm just uh, really fortunate. I was here in Vegas, which, you know, a lot more room, a lot more space. I mean, LA was is amazing, but um, when you're in LA, you're paying for the environment. And so, you know, I'm outdoors all the time, out doing stuff the time. And uh, in Vegas, we just had so much more room. So it actually worked out perfect. Why didn't you ever open a school? You know, um, I had had my own gym in Los Angeles for 10 years. And before that, I had taught at Hickson School for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And just the amount of time and effort and work that it takes to run and manage a school, you know, I think a lot of times what happens is with a lot of jujitsu practitioners, um, at least in my time, as I was coming up, the thought is always, wow, I'm so passionate about this. I love jujitsu and I want to make a career out of it. And so the natural kind of of next step for people to make a career out of it is open up a school and start teaching, right? And that was kind of the path originally that was available to me when I first started. If I wanted to make money doing what I love, doing jujitsu, my option was to basically open up a school. And what I realized the last couple of years is that because I had been so busy traveling and teaching seminars is that I didn't need to have a school. I'm, I guess, one of the few guys in such a fortunate place that I don't, I didn't have to have a school to be able to, I looked at my finances, I looked at what I was doing, like, Besides the seminars, I also do a couple camps a year. a Couple camps. Sometimes I'll do one in Vegas, but and then I usually try to do like one or two international camps. And with all the events that I was doing and running, I realized if I wasn't living in LA, I could actually, I could actually have a career and make a living just doing seminars and camps. And so that was kind of part of the other decision. You know, when I was living in LA, I was teaching all week, teaching classes, teaching privates all week, and then on the weekends I would fly out and do seminars. And um, after a couple of years of that it's like seven days a week, I was starting to get burnt out. And it's a horrible feeling, you know, when you're so passionate and you love, you know, you have so much love for something that you start to get burnt out on your passion. It's a, it's just a terrible feeling. It's a, it's kind of something I don't want to happen. I think what a lot of people don't realize is in order to really have a successful school, the amount of time and responsibility that goes into it. And my passion is teaching jujitsu and sharing jujitsu and spreading jujitsu. My passion is not making a lot of money running a business, running a martial arts school, two very different things. And I think a lot of people that when they originally start, like a lot of martial artists, they're fantastic martial artists, but they don't realize that starting and running a business is a completely different beast. I know a lot of jujitsu guys that would be considered average or mediocre jujitsu guys that have incredibly successful businesses. And on the flip side, a lot of amazing jujitsu competitors, guys that are amazingly talented and skilled applying the art, but they're broke. So, you know, the amount of time and energy and effort it takes to really run and have a school. And then the other thing, too, is when you have a school, especially starting out because I started my own gym in L.A., when you first start out, the students want to see you there. They want you there. And it takes a few years to build up instructors, takes about four to five years to be able to build up instructors so that they can teach for you. And you can kind of start kind of not being at the school as often, you know, that I just wasn't ready for that level of commitment.
0: Yeah, I often talk to uh, academy owners and prospective academy owners. And one of those things that I've learned, too, is that you're not only the jujitsu instructor, you're the plumber, you're the psychologist, you're the marketer.
1: It's a huge responsibility, you know, and I think people don't understand that. You have to understand sales, you have to understand marketing, you have to understand retention. Even if you put people in place to handle those things, at the end of the day, it's your business and you're responsible for everything. And then you also have to manage all of the personalities that train at your gym. And so that's another thing, you know, just managing all the personalities, dealing with all the different personalities. It's a lot. It can be definitely exhausting. if, If you're just running a school and just operating the school, I think it's manageable. But if you're doing other things to with jujitsu, like I was doing where I was doing seminars two to three a month for me it was getting exhausting.
0: Henry, can you tell us about hidden jujitsu.com? Because it, it seems like there's so much there. I was checking it out. I mean, you got the blog, you got the camps, you have all these offerings. Can you explain to the listener what it is?
1: Sure. Um, You know what, what happened was eight years ago, when I started traveling and teaching seminars, one of the things I started to realize was how much Hickson's jujitsu, the jujitsu I learned from Hickson wasn't available out there. What happened was, you know, for those listeners that don't know who I am or don't know anything about me, uh basically, I moved from Oklahoma to Los Angeles in 1995 to start training under Hicks and Gracie. Hicks and Gracie is considered, the, for his time, the greatest of all time, and even among into his 40s and 50s, he was still dominating most of the current world champions. And so I had the opportunity to train with him for 15 years. And during that time I was training with him, it was back in the early days of jujitsu where th- schools were very, very closed off to outsiders. And if you would go and train in another school, there was a term called creonche, which means trader. So um, everyone kind of stuck to and trained at their own schools. It was kind of very tribal. And so as I started to, once I opened up my own school and I started traveling around teaching seminars, I had all these people that were very interested in Hickson's jujitsu. What made Hickson's Jitsu so different? And as I started teaching it and seeing what was being taught at other schools, I realized how different my knowledge of jiu-jitsu was, what I was doing, the, the way that I applied techniques, the details. I was just, I was baffled by it. actually the first few years. I was just like, I can't believe I always. Thought that because I only trained with Hickson, I always thought, hey, I'm learning jiu jitsu. These guys are learning jiu jitsu. It's all the same thing. And what I discovered was actually, it's very, very different. There's a lot of subtleties and a lot of things that Hickson did. And he changed so much of even his father's jiu jitsu. And we talked about kind of the evolution of jiu jitsu and how, even for me, I've been training 27 years now, I'm constantly getting better. So the goal for me was to teach that to the biggest audience to really, because at the time, Hickson had stopped teaching. He wasn't teaching anymore he had moved back to brazil and he wasn't really sharing his jiu-jitsu and being the best in the world for almost uh, for a couple decades people wanted access to that knowledge because it wasn't his physicality that made him the best in the world it was his mindset and also his application of technique his techniques, his fundamentals, his basics are so refined, you almost don't see it anywhere. So that's what I started doing. I started wanting to try to teach his jiu-jitsu and share it with the most amount of people as possible. Because what I realized is if he were to pass and I were to pass, there's only a handful of people that really know and understand uh, his jiu-jitsu, has a deep level of understanding of his jiu-jitsu. And so the goal for me was to be able to pass it on. And so at that time, I started recording all of the information I could. And I focused it on positions. And then I started doing uh, seminars and with travel with a camera guy at every seminar I went to to record all this information. And the goal, again, was just to to leave it for future generations to be able to make sure that this information lives on because I was not seeing it being taught anywhere that I was going. What makes a great jujitsu student? That's a great question. I think one of the things with students is really the ability to trust your coach. Trust your coach and follow direction. You know, when you talk about a student, you're talking about someone that is there with kind of a blank slate and comes to you and puts their trust in you. And I think um, that's exactly what students should do is if you're going to pick a coach to guide you, trust them and try to follow through with what these instructions are. I know it's kind of a joke in the jiu-jitsu community, but a lot of times like the white belt, blue belt level... Like when guys start to get in the purple belt level, they tend to experiment. They're on YouTube all the time looking. And so instead of trusting in the coach, which it can definitely be good or bad. But one of the things I've noticed in a lot of jujitsu is there's so many different styles of jujitsu and some styles of jujitsu just don't work with other styles. But I think, yeah, to be a good student, I think it really, it comes down to trust in your coach. And, um, you know, when you're talking about a student of anything, right, you're there to absorb the information and then apply it. Can you give me an example of when styles clash? Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example. So some styles are very, very grippy and, you know, require tons of grips and some styles don't. And so that creates a problem, like, especially if you're training from gi to no gi. So I'll give you an example. You're training at a school that primarily trains in the gi and most of the techniques, a lot of the control relies on grips. And then you train at a school which trains mostly no gi um, and you try to transition. And because now in order for you to create control, have some type of control and for you to have leverage on your opponent, now you don't have it. So that puts you at a huge disadvantage. So like that's a specific situation. Another example would be some schools, and, and you'll see this a lot, are very, very, very movement-based, flowy, like the style of jujitsu, there's a lot of movement. Then you'll see other guys, their style is a lot more pressure and it doesn't require much movement. It's more fundamental, more basic, more pressure. And so those two styles are almost polar opposites, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The light flowy, very fast game, and then the slow pressure methodical game are two very different styles of jujitsu. And it's very hard to mix and match those Mm -hmm. styles. Do you believe in
0: like a universal style interweave between gi and no gi, universal grips, so to speak?
1: I think you should always train not relying on grips. And I think that I think you can be very effective in a gi, training gi jujitsu, not relying on grips, using wrist grabs, grabbing behind the elbow. I think hand in the collar is practical and it transitions to basically like a collar tie. But yeah, for myself, I think that's really important conversely what makes a great instructor gosh i think that's that's a pretty deep question i think there's a lot of things that make a great instructor having a breadth of knowledge having a depth of knowledge being able to help each student individually and uniquely, because at the end of the day, a lot of jujitsu is very relevant to different body types. So different size, different body types will tend to gravitate to different techniques and different movements. And so being able to help all those students, for example, short people, guys with short arms, short legs, usually do not tend to do well at darces and triangles. Guys with short legs usually are not doing for the back. They're not, using a body lock to control. Usually the taller lanky guys, that's kind of their realm. So being able to adapt the jujitsu to work for any size athlete, I think that's important. Having the knowledge to be able to do that. And again, like I said, each each student is so unique, not only mindset wise, personality wise, but body type wise. And so being able to make those little adjustments and adaptations to be able to help everybody. So in order to do that, you do need to have a good breadth of knowledge, but also a great depth of knowledge.
0: Have you ever had to admit or admitted to a student that you
1: were wrong or that your view on something has evolved? All the time. All the time. Yeah. I mean, jujitsu is 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 kind of an evolution. I've been a black belt now for 19 years. So I've been a black belt longer than all of my other belts combined, right? It took me eight years to get my black belt. And um, I've been a black belt for 19 years now. And so in that time, so much of my jujitsu has evolved, way that I used to do things before, I'm doing it way more efficient. So that's one of the beautiful things about jujitsu for myself that is so inspiring for me is that I feel like the more time you put into the art, the more it rewards you. It's mm-hmm. it's one of those things that for myself, I had my experience with it is, you know, the more time I commit to it, I continue to improve and continue to get better, which is amazing because a lot of times other things will feel they'll reach a cap or a certain threshold, but I felt that I'm continuing, I'm still getting better. I'm still improving, I'm still getting gaining a deeper level of knowledge of the art. And so a lot of things that I used to do, I used to do a certain way, what I found better and more efficient ways of doing things. And so, you know, I don't necessarily say wrong because everything, before I teach anything in jiu-jitsu, I always test it to make sure it works. So I never say I'm wrong, but you know what I always say is like, Hey, I found a better way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's kind of always been the truth in jujitsu. Jitsu is kind of always the, the quest for effectiveness and efficiency. And effectiveness being, does it work? Does it work at a high level? And efficiency, meaning, can we achieve the same results using less strength, less energy, less power, less movement? So it's kind of a quest for as you start to improve in your jujitsu, you're always looking to be more effective and more efficient. And so throughout that journey, through my journey, 27 years now, it's constantly been going in that direction.
0: Is there a time that you saw something in jujitsu that changed the direction of your teaching?
1: Yeah, many times. I've had a lot of uh, those moments and epiphanies that have completely shifted. There's a famous story that I tell all the time. There was a, a sparring session that I saw with Hickson. And at the time, this was in the late 90s. Hickson was getting ready, preparing for a fight in Japan, and um, he had been injured and he hadn't been training. He had hurt his groin and he had taken quite a bit of time off because it wasn't healing. And even walking or driving a car would irritate it. So um, he hadn't trained in about nine months and there was a guy, a competitor who had just won the Pan Ams. He was a two-time world champion, and he had come to the school, and he came in. He was going back to Brazil, so flew from Hawaii to Los Angeles, and from Los Angeles was going to fly back to Brazil. He stopped in for class, and at the end of class, Hickson came up and taught the class because he was in town. So at the end of class, he asked Hickson to roll. So Hickson put us all to train. We're all training, and they started rolling. Within two to three minutes of them rolling, the whole mat cleared off. Everyone stopped training or was watching them. So this is... 25-year-old, just got back from winning the Pan Ams in the best shape of his life. And Hickson is 40, 39, 40, and hadn't trained in nine months. And so they're going. And after a few minutes, uh, Hickson caught him with an armbar from the guard and they start rolling again and about three or four minutes later he tapped and um I didn't really see I was sitting on the wall so and their body positioning was a little bit of a weird angle so I didn't really see what it was what would he tap to so after class I asked Hickson I said hey Hickson um what did you get him with that second time I didn't see what he, you caught him with and Hickson told me he tapped the pressure and I said what he said oh yeah he, he said he tapped to pressure and I was just like what the heck is he talking about that's not possible that's Like like uh, just I was baffled by it. He said, Henry, he said, I haven't trained. He goes, I haven't trained in nine months and my conditioning's bad. Like normally Hickson's like a cardio beast. You can't tire him out, but he wasn't even able to ride his bike. He wasn't able to do anything because of his groin. Mm -hmm. So, and he said, he's in the best shape of his life. He said, I knew he was going to come at me. And so I just made him carry my weight. And so they were going, the match was a very fast paced match. It was actually really back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, really, really fast pace, you know, like constantly changing positions, constantly changing positions, a lot of movement, And uh, he basically said, you know, I made him carry my weight. I forced him to carry my weight. And basically what he did is he gassed him. And then at that second round, the second match, he was basically after tiring him out so much, he was putting so much pressure on him. There's just like ways to do that, put pressure on people's chest so that they can't breathe, makes it very difficult for them to breathe. And um, it feels like like you're being drowned or suffocated. And so that was a huge, that was probably one of the biggest like epiphanies for me in my life, because after that, I kind of dedicated almost 12 years to really understanding this concept the idea of weight distribution and understanding how to use your weight and how to apply your weight effectively in training and so that's really what was going on you know the easiest way i can describe that for people is uh you know when you're training with someone else imagine you're doing sprints right if i told you hey you're going to go outside and i want you to do 10 sprints if you're in great shape if you're a good athlete probably no problem. You're going to be winded, but no problem. But if I say, hey, I want you to do these sprints back and forth, you're going to do 10 times, but you're going to put on a 150 pound weight vest and do these sprints. Imagine what that's going to feel like. And so that's basically what Hickson did is he forced his opponent through all of that movement to carry his weight. So every movement he made, he's exerting two to three times the amount of energy he would normally exert. And that has an effect. So as human beings, all of us get tired. All of us get tired. We have different thresholds, but we all get tired and your muscles too. Regardless, you know, you work out, I could say, Hey, lift a hundred pounds and you could do it 10 times. But if I say, I want you to bench press a hundred pounds and I'll do it 150 times. I guarantee you around 75, 80, you're going to be like, Ugh. and so because jujitsu is you're basically training over time, the better you are at using your weight, the better you are at using your weight, the more advantage you'll have, especially in longer matches. And so it's funny because John Danaher, you can see this very much in Gordon style now. And it's just been the last couple of years that you're really starting to see this sprout up in Gordon style because it's only been the last couple of years that he's really playing a lot more and been focused more on playing on top. Before that, he was mostly known as like a leg lock guy and more sitting in butterfly and basically attacking the legs. But the last Two and a half years, three years, you actually see him fighting for top and actually transitioning to the mount a lot, forcing the mount position. And the reason, one of the reasons why Gordon, even, you know, he mentions that he prefers longer matches is because he knows his jujitsu is far more efficient and the amount of pressure that he puts on people will break people. And so that's why, you know, usually like the match with Felipe Pena... You know, he wanted to do an hour long match. They stopped, I think, at 45 minutes that last match, but he wants to do no time limit matches. He wants to do because when you're dealing with guys in an extremely high level, really, really good guys, these guys that are, you know, the best guys in the world, they can kind of defend for 15, 20 minutes. They can hold you off. Like if you look at the match with uh Nikki Rod at the UFC fight pass, Nicky Rod and Gordon, it's a 20-minute match. And he's able to hold Gordon off and defend and kind of stay safe for 20 minutes, you know. And then it goes to EBI overtime rules and which is is what he was looking for. So when you're dealing with these really, really good guys, that idea and understanding of weight distribution makes such a huge difference. And the other thing that I saw that was so important is I said, here's Hickson in his 40s and he hasn't trained in nine months and he's going against the guy that's the two-time world champion, 25 years old in the best shape of his life. And Hickson was able to completely dominate. So I said, man, if I want to be effective with my jujitsu in my later years, I need to start learning this now. I need to start training this now. I need to start doing this now. So I made it a priority to really learn and develop what he was doing. Improving
0: your mobility and recovery will only benefit your BJJ, and as such, we highly recommend you try Yoga for BJJ at yogaforbjj.net. Use our code FWB, all uppercase FWB, to get 20% off
1: your subscription, yogaforbjj.net.
0: Would you agree that weight distribution is an advanced concept?
1: it's actually very Mm. simple to understand it's but it it takes forever to master i mean the understanding Mm. is simple anytime you're training with someone anytime you're on top of someone you want to apply your weight on them you want to force them to carry your weight because why a it makes them exert way more energy than what they want and it tires them out so and jujitsu has always been a game of efficiency that's why if you look at the first few ufcs when gracie Jiu-Jitsu was really trying to establish itself as the most effective art in the world the matches were no weight distribution no time limit all of the matches in the ufc it was a tournament style format no weight distribution no time limit and very very little rules And the reason is, is because they knew efficiency wins out. Hoist was in a couple of the events, the smallest guy in the event. And the thing is, he knew that, for example, UFC 4, he fought Dan Severn. Dan Severn outweighed him by almost 100 pounds and is an Olympic level athlete, was an Olympic alternate in wrestling, also a grappler. After 14 minutes, Hoist was able to stay safe and catch him in a triangle. So you're fighting a guy that's 100 pounds heavier than you, Olympic level athlete, but he's so efficient. He was able to stay safe, save energy and wait for an opportunity. And as the bigger, stronger guy starts to get tired, he's going to start to make mistakes. And if you're fresh, you're able to capitalize on those mistakes. And so yeah, jujitsu has always been about this idea of efficiency. And uh, that's why you hear coaches always saying, learn to relax, learn to relax right? Learn to relax when you're training so you're not burning so much energy so that you can train longer because sometimes the match takes longer. It takes longer to be able to catch the person to finish. And we all know as we get tired, all athletes, the best athletes in the world, no matter who you are, once you start to get tired, your performance drops. Everyone, That's just a given. You look at the best, the most dangerous guys in the world, the best fighters in the world, Conor McGregor, right? Everyone says, oh man, the betting lines for Conor is like the first two rounds, everyone gives it to Connor. If it goes past the second round, then it starts to go in the other guy's favor. BJ Penn was very much like that, right? Everyone said, oh, BJ has a cardio issue. Mike Tyson, if you can get out of the first six rounds with Mike Tyson, you have a much better chance of beating him. So a lot of these athletes that are very, very dangerous, very, very tough, we know Vitor Belfort's another one, right? Once people start to get tired, their performance drops. You know, that's the other thing is how efficient are you at the art? Because you want to be able to train and not have to waste a ton of energy so that you can go forever if you need to. Mm. And that was a of the Gracie family.
0: Can you explain, and I know you have a million times on podcasts, but I'm just fascinated by this idea. I would always have thought a scarf hold example or or something when you want to be really heavy, even side control, it's so tempting to just want to crush the belly, crush the diaphragm. But I've heard you time and time again, mention something about the upper chest and being heavy there. And it seems so counterintuitive because I would think chest plate, ribs, they have that protective structure in place.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, it's really simple, actually. In order for you to breathe, your lungs need to expand. So you take a deep breath, you'll feel your lungs. You breathe out, your lungs compress. So that's the basic understanding. Your, Your lungs move and there's actually, it's not just your diaphragm. There's 36 muscles that are involved in breathing. So you have intercostal muscles that help your rib cage to expand. Most people, if you don't practice breathing, you have weak breathing muscles if you do practice breath work, your breathing muscles are a bit stronger. But again, with all muscles, all muscles get tired, right? Mm -hmm. All muscles get tired over time. And so the idea with the weight distribution, you hear about this happening all the time in earthquakes. And uh, actually there was an event, there was a concert in Houston, the whole crowd rushed the stage. And I think eight people died. I think the event was called Astro World. Travis Scott is who it was. And what happened was eight people died. Uh, Only one person uh, when they did the autopsy reports had chemicals in their system and drugs in their system. The other people died from what the coroner reported was traumatic asphyxiation. What happens is so much pressure on your chest that your lungs can't expand and you can't breathe. So they died from suffocation. When I was in high school, we used to do this game. It's kind of silly game now, but we used to make each other pass out by hyperventilating. And then you stand up and someone pushes on your chest and then you pass out. (laughs) because you're not able to breathe. So, you you know, you go unconscious. But yeah, pressure on the chest. In earthquakes, it happens all the time when something heavy falls on someone's chest. And what happens is they're able to breathe, but eventually those breathing muscles get tired and their lungs can't expand and they're not able to take in oxygen. So when you think about, you know, people refer to as chokes in jujitsu, um, there's many methods by which we go about applying a choker or being effective with a choke to be able to get someone to tap. Nowadays, many people call it stress strangulation but strangulation is basically cutting off the blood to the brain right that's one method the other method is not letting air go into the lungs meaning mm-hmm. like cutting off the windpipe and so there's certain chokes that work by not allowing for example guillotine the way that some people apply Mm -hmm. guillotine, because there's different methods, cuts off your windpipe, or it's a trach choke. Sometimes people Mm -hmm. call it a trach choke, where it's more windpipe. And then this is another form of a choke where you're basically not allowing the lungs to expand so that air can't come in.
0: Hard right turn here. And the role of an uke and how to be a great uke.
1: Well, you have two things, right? The instructor showing a technique, uh, hopefully the UK knows whatever technique the instructor is trying to show and just cooperates with him. because at that time the instructor is trying to teach the students a technique. And so obviously just knowing what technique he's trying to show and giving him the right resistance or giving him the right energy so that he can apply the technique is helpful. When it comes to partnering up as a partner to drill technique, obviously you want to drill the technique with your training partner and then give them feedback. So I think many times what happens is when people are, are drilling techniques, sometimes people don't, don't get it to work. Hey, this is what I'm feeling here. This is what I'm feeling here. So I think it's really important when you're partnered up with someone and you guys are working on a new technique or, or trying to develop a technique or trying to learn a technique is to give each other feedback on what you're experiencing and what you're feeling.
0: I heard you before mentioned that belts don't matter. Can you uh, elaborate?
1: It's not that belts don't matter because obviously it's for many people, uh, belts are very, very important. But what I mean by that is there's no set standard for what any belt should be. It's all based on whoever presents you the belt. When I was training with Hickson, there were many, many guys that had were training with us, left because they felt they deserved to be promoted, went to another school, and within the first week there were promoted by their new instructor. How much better could they have actually be? How much better can you be in one week? Right. Mm-hmm. So belts are basically just a sign from your instructor. And that's the thing is different instructors, even among their own students have different standards. So, you know, I think a a belt is just basically a sign from your instructor is that you're on the right path and you're doing the right thing. And it's just acknowledgement. It's just your instructor acknowledging you that you're making progress. And the crazy thing in Jiu-Jitsu, there's no set standard for what any belt should be. Mm -hmm. People always ask me, what do you think a blue belt should be? What do you think a purple belt? I mean, and Mm -hmm. it really comes down to, well, it depends on who you're choosing. choosing to be graded by. And again, even among different instructors, the same instructor like For me, if I was grading, let's say a 25-year-old collegiate wrestler who had wrestled his whole life, we take this guy and we just and then it's his first day in jujitsu, it's his first class in jujitsu, even though he has a grappling background, right? It's he's the kind of a newbie to jujitsu. Or you take a 60-year-old guy who's a doctor and a father of four kids that's just starting jujitsu, you're not gonna hold them to the same standard. The doctor will never be able to achieve the same level as the high school or the collegiate wrestler who's been wrestling wrestling and grappling his whole life. So you can't hold them to the same standard.
0: I've heard you mention before, giving up on finishes too soon, for example, the
1: cross-collar choke. You mean giving up on them too soon as in learning them, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to that, when it comes to mastering the fundamentals, I think many times people give up on learning techniques too soon. And what I mean by that is they start to struggle they start to do a technique and they have some success with it in the beginning. And then what eventually happens is the people that they're training with either figure out what they're doing and start to be able to shut that down. And eventually what happens is with many people, many times they stop applying that technique. They stop using the technique because they say, oh, this doesn't work for me against the guys I'm training with anymore. Mm -hmm. Instead of understanding, well, what are these guys doing to stop me? How are they stopping it? what are they doing and figuring out how you can continue to use it and basically shut down or basically compensate for what they're doing to counter it. You mentioned the cross collar choke and the cross collar choke is one of the first techniques we learn in jujitsu, yet very few people ever take the time to master it. But the guys that have put time into mastering it, you see they're effective with it at the highest levels of competition. I'll give you an example, Hodger Gracie. I think there was one of the world championships where he finished almost he I think he had 10 fights and he finished almost every single guy with the cross-collar from the mount. Um Salo is extremely good at the cross-collar choke. Mm-hmm. Shanghi is extremely good. They've won so many matches with the cross-collar choke. Uh Rafael Lovato, who's the most decorated American grappler, I think, as in major tournaments, you know, I think he's done better than Gordon, right? I think Gordon just cause Gordon only competes no gi. So as in the diversity where, uh, Hafael was competing gi and no gi, but, um, he finished many matches. He's really, really good. That's almost like his, his bread and butter is the cross color choke from the mount. So it's just a very, you know, it's a, it's a tool we learn at the white belt level, but very few people will actually put the time into mastering it. And that's exactly what it takes. It takes time the nice thing with the cross collar is this obviously it's a tool that you can use from the mount it works from the closed guard it works from the open guard it works from neon belly and it works from cross side and it even works from half guard on the bottom so you have one attack that you can learn that can be applied in all of these different positions so you tell me if it's worth learning the technique (laughs) You have you learn one technique and you can apply it from all these different positions. I mean, there's very few techniques that you have that many positions where you can use it. The nice thing too is, you know, people always say, Oh, it's not practical for fighting, but um, it's actually very practical is any anytime someone has a jacket on, mm-hmm. which most people in the United States now are wearing jackets. Anytime someone has a jacket on, a hoodie on, a collared shirt on cross collar chokes available. And I've even seen people do it with t-shirts. So all you need to do is just bunch up the cloth. Your thoughts on belt testing? I have mixed feelings about belt testing and mixed feelings, not like good or bad, but I think they can be helpful because you're holding someone to a certain standard of knowledge. I'm creating a test because I want you to be able to show me that you know and understand all these things. But I think also as an instructor, if you are training, if you're there teaching and training with your students on a day-in, day-out basis, you know their level, you know what they're capable of, and you know. So what's interesting for me, I was given all of my belts. I never was tested for any belt. So I was given every single one of my belts was just handed to me. Yet, Hickson did have belt testing we were a school that tested students and i was many times there for the belt testing and one of the instructors that was mm-hmm. that would grade the belt testing and when i talked to the students about the testing, our belt testing for like a blue belt test was like eight hours. It was very, very intense um, because not only did they have to explain the techniques and demonstrate the techniques, but they also had to be able to demonstrate it in training, their effectiveness in training. And because it was a very difficult test for those people that were basically moving mm. to that rank, the guys really, really appreciated. They felt that they got a ton of value out of being tested and they really, really appreciated. It, and it was a very memorable experience for them. Mm. So I'm not pro or con belt testing. I know that if you do it properly, if you do it the right way, it can provide a ton of value for the students. I think anytime we do anything difficult in life, which that belt test, like I said, was a very difficult thing. Uh, It was eight hours, very long, very intense. People get value from it.
0: Funny story, Eli Knight shared with me back when he was training under um voice that uh he would witness sometimes if anyone else asked about their belt or their promotion or when am I gonna get my next belt, it's immediately an additional six months.
1: So. Yeah. I I I I know uh it's kind of like for many of the old school guys, you are not supposed to ask for your belt. It's kind of considered like uh don't ask about your belt, don't ask for a belt. You'll you'll get it when it comes. But Again, that has also changed with some guys, like I said, you know, back in the day earlier on, because, you know, I trained with Hickson for 15 years in the few, the beginning years, the belt was always given. And then in the later years, we were doing testing, people were very resistant to it. Like, oh man, why do I have to test for a belt? Like you guys we're giving your belts and people thought it felt nicer to be given a belt. But when we tested guys, they actually really, really appreciated it because it was kind of like a class and a test all in one. So, yeah.
0: Can you give advice to us, middle age, masters level players, training, for instance, we're obviously going to get hurt more. It seems
1: like when we get hurt, it's extended mm-hmm. periods of recovery. It's not a given that you're going to get hurt more. It depends on how you're training. It mm-hmm. depends on your training partners and who you're training with there's a potential. Well, the problem is, it's not that you you have a higher potential of getting hurt. The problem is, is when you do get hurt, the recovery is so much longer. As you get older, because it takes longer to recover, and because the greatest detriment to progress is injury, because now you have to take time off. The crazy thing with getting an injury is, let's say you're injured and you have to take two or three months off. Or let's say you have to have a surgery and you have to take six months off. It's not only the six months off that you have to take, but if I take six months off, it might take me an additional two months just to get back to the level or where I felt I was before I took that time off. Mm -hmm. You have to take a month off. You know, it still takes like a week or so. You know, you take two months off, it might take two weeks to get back to the place where you felt you were because you're rusty, right? You're Mm -hmm. rusty, your timing's off, your conditioning's off all of those things make a difference. So it's a massive setback when you get injured. And so it's, it's not a guarantee that you're, it's not likely like you're more all of a sudden, just because you're older, you're more prone to injury, just injuries take longer. So you have to train smarter. And what do I mean by training smarter? Well, your body doesn't recover as quickly. And so doing hard, hard trainings every day, five days a week doesn't make sense because the more you wear your body down, the more you break your body down, the more exposed you are to injury. One of the big things is try to be more relaxed in training. Try not to be so tense when you're training. People put so much emphasis. It's interesting. People put so much emphasis on flexibility and they think flexibility is a deterrent or sometimes is an injury prevention, the more flexible you are. But um, it's a huge misunderstanding because what happens is If I'm tense when I'm training, all of my muscles are basically pulling and forcing my body to stay in this specific shape. If someone were to jerk my arm real fast, it's a good possibility I tear my shoulders. So even though my natural range of motion is here when I'm relaxed, as soon as I tense up, I automatically lose all of my flexibility because the muscles are pulling the bones into a certain position. Everything is pulling to basically keep a certain position. And so you do a wild kind of unpredictable movement yeah, you're really exposed to injury. You tear things, you get things torn. And so, A, you know, one of the biggest ways to really bring down the occurrence of injury is train more relaxed, train more like loose and relaxed when you're training. Another thing is I'm a big fan of positional training. I think that's huge. I think it's one of the most important tools that we have to really developing a high level of skill. And the value of positional training is when you're doing a normal training, like you're just doing an open round, what happens sometimes when you're training with someone is the, mindset for a lot of these athletes is I need to go as hard or a little bit harder than this guy to be able to beat him. And so what happens is, and all of us have had this experience when you start rolling with someone and you feel they start to turn up the intensity, you feel, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, this guy's turning up. I need to turn it up because Mm -hmm. in order for me to beat him. I need to be here or here. And then he feels that you've turned up the intensity. And so, what happens is you constantly have this escalation of intensity, and that creates an environment for injury. And so, the nice thing with the positional training is it doesn't allow that to happen. So, positional training is uh, you start in a specific position, and once something has changed, you stop and you reset. So, because you're stopping and resetting, it doesn't allow for this ramping up of intensity. So I think that training and flow rolling where you're basically just moving with someone very fluid and you're not going for submissions at all. You're just moving and breathing and trying to stay relaxed and trying to, it's like a flow rolling is a much faster pace training. So it's really there to develop your lungs and it's to develop your mind and the transitions, knowing as things move, as the person's constant, how do you adapt to their movements? So it really trains your mind for the rapidity of the movements and and being able to follow and know where you're at as things start to change. I've noticed that
0: you've really turned it on in terms of your digital presence, which is fantastic. What's Ah. crazy
1: is for the last eight years, nine years, I've brought a camera guy with me to almost every single seminar I've ever taught, Wow! which is now in the hundreds. And the idea behind that was, hey, I'm teaching. I would like to record all this content to preserve it for future generations so Mm -hmm. that the knowledge can be passed on. And when I teach at the events, what's really interesting is because even though I'm teaching the same topic and I might even be showing the same techniques is what happens is people will ask questions and the questions will be different depending on what school I am. So I might teach like how to do a choke and like, oh, hey, you know, I do it like this, but the guy defends like this or, hey, I do this all the time and I have a training partner that puts his hand inside like this. How do you deal with it, right? And so because after I teach the technique, I have the camera guy follows me as I do Q&A, which is basically I'm going around and I'm helping this all of the students on the mat with their questions, Are they able to apply the technique. If it's not working for them, what's going on? What are they doing wrong, right? What are they missing? And if it does work for them and it usually tends to be the higher level guys, hey, I do this all the time, but now... This person does this to stop me or this guy does this to shut it down. So what is the adjustment that I need to make so that I can still be effective with the technique, right? So oh, I go for the cross collar choke and the guy puts his hand inside like this. Well, do I just give up the cross collar choke? No. Why would I do that? I'm already halfway there. I already have my hand. So I just need to clear that hand out of the way and then I'll go for So all of that has been captured. And so, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I have so much content available. And so what I decided to start doing is like, you know, there's so much of these like little moments that are just like, aha, like, wow, that was amazing. Like these little kind of tips, these little details that are kind of my bread and butter. It's kind of the basics, but really, really refined, like very, very simple things that you can do that make huge differences in your game. So I've been working with some guys, some social media guys, and just sharing all that because again, like I said, I have hundreds of hours of seminar footage where I'm teaching and sharing these little details that have a profound impact on people's effectiveness with jujitsu.
0: They really do. And I'm, I'm
1: happy to see them scaling out again. You know, I just think that there's a lot of people that don't know A lot of these details. At least that's been my experience. And that's why I'm so busy traveling and teaching, is for the most part, anytime I've come and taught at any school, any topic, the students and the instructors tend to be so mind blown. I've been invited back almost every single time I've ever taught at a school. Over the years now, I have so many schools that are like, oh, we're having you back next year. We're having you back next year. So every year, some schools I even do, there's certain schools that I even travel out to twice a year because they love what they're seeing. They love what they're learning. It's them. So profound for them.
0: Yeah, it's on my bucket list to get to one of your camps for sure. I, I can't wait. Can you talk about your? You got Costa, Costa Rica, Rica, you got Las Vegas, I saw you've.
1: Yeah, um, it kind of. I try to switch it up from year to year, but Costa Rica, I've done every year for the last seven years now, and people love that camp. It's just a beautiful place that we go to. the The town is called Tamarindo. It's a, like a surf resort town and that's got like an amazing break, beautiful beaches. It's just a great vacation for people, and we usually tend to do that one towards the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And so this year we're doing it in April. So for those people that are you know super sick of the cold and want some beach time, that'll be April eleventh to the fourteenth. So it's just. Four days. And it's an amazing camp. The reason I've done that one so many times is just people love it. People keep coming back. And so I kind of got to give the people what they want. And then there's a great school down there too, which we donate to, which is a nonprofit. It's called Hero Academy. And right. they do is they give all of the kids in the town of Tamarino and all the neighboring towns free jujitsu. They offer all the kids free jujitsu and they give them free gis and they pay for all their traveling if they go to compete. So it's really, really cool. So I'm I just love what they're doing down there. They're helping, you know, Kind of my mission is make people's lives better through jujitsu, and they're definitely doing that. So I go there every year. I've done Thailand, which is another That's camp. Right hoping to do towards the end of 2023. It's been a while since we've been back. COVID kind of threw things off. We had an amazing camp at Tiger Muay Thai in Phuket. Mm -hmm. It was basically 2020 as it transitioned over 2019 to 2020, that new year. So it was like one of the best camps I've ever done. It was just amazing. Like the facility, everyone had such an amazing time. So I'm hoping to do that towards the end of the year, maybe in 2023 for New Year's. But I try to do one in Vegas every year. And Vegas is just easy because there's just so much to do on Vegas. And Vegas is so accommodating. The accommodations are easy. You have the best restaurants in the world, the best shopping in the world, tons of entertainment. Go train jujitsu, go hang out at the pool, go out. The nightlife obviously is amazing. So Vegas is just an easy place in there. And Vegas is is meant to bring people in and keep people and host people. So and then I did one in Destin, Florida last year, which tends to be easier for people on the East Coast to get out to. And people had a great time there at the Destin camp. So, you know, every year I try to mix it up a little bit. I'm always looking for like cool places to go. Uh, I want to try to get to Europe at some point and do a camp in Europe. I've done Bali and Bali was amazing too as wow. well. So um, you know, most people love traveling, they like to go on vacation, they like to travel, they like to have new experiences and experiences, different culture, and see different things. And if you train jujitsu, most people that I know that train jiu-jitsu are very passionate about jujitsu, they become very addicted to jujitsu. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get to train for a couple hours a day and take your jiu-jitsu to the next level and um go on vacation and have an amazing time. So
0: I want to get your thoughts on the upward trajectory of jiu-jitsu now, and especially its growth globally, I'll say. But in my purview the United States, we now see what used to be like t- people in their 20s and 30s coming into jiu-jitsu. And now it's common for children, like five-year-olds and for babies well, now I coming
1: think, up. I think just everything. I think not only uh, you see Tom Hardy is training, like you see all these celebrities training. You've seen like he just uh, travels all over and just jumps into these tournaments. He's a blue belt and he's just like wrecking people, right? Yeah, so um, from tools. Rock stars and everyone, yeah, yeah. Well, Maynard's been training forever. Me and Maynard started training. We started training together. We st- both started the same week at Hickson's. Maynard's been my buddy for 27 years now. So, um, but
0: these these babies. Now we're seeing like the fruits of that being people like the Rotolo brothers and et cetera. Now that is the Tackett brothers, right. and that is the norm and younger now.
1: Younger, younger, younger. Right, and yeah. so
0: we're seeing kids easily with 10 years in solid jujitsu in their teens.
1: Which is awesome. It's incredible. I mean, it's like uh well, if you think about it, that's how the Gracie family was, right? The Gracie right. family, they all started training when they were two or three. So now that's just extended over to the US. At scale. It's at scale now. Yeah, it's it's just scaled up. So like I said, it's just become more popular. And what you see, because you have so many more people training and they're training at a younger age, you just see getting to experience a much higher level, right? Anytime you have that many people doing one thing and everyone Mm -hmm. on one thing together, you just see the level of it rising. And so I think it's awesome. I mean, I think it's incredible. I mean, when I started Jiu-Jitsu, never could I have imagined it's become what it's become. Can you tell me, uh, what do you wish you were better at? Where do you want your game to go? everything i'm constantly working i mean i'll just give you like my strategy for improving myself every year or two years i take a look at my game top and bottom offense, defense. And I try to be very critical of myself and say, hey, where where are my strengths and where are my weaknesses? Wherever I feel I'm the weakest, I will put three to four months of time that year, the first part of the year into developing that so that it's not my weakest thing anymore. And then because that now is not the weakest, something else will become the weakest. And so when I train, I'm constantly kind of rotating my training and rotating my focus of my game on what I really think I need to develop in my game. You know, I expect earlier in the podcast, I spent like 12 years really focusing on weight distribution. So I was really focused on top and not only weight distribution from cross side, weight distribution from guard passing, and then weight distribution from the mount, and then weight distribution from scarf. So I spent considerable amounts of time thinking about weight distribution and understanding how to apply it from all the different positions. And then even understand it from the bottom. So for me right now, what I'm working on, because earlier in my career, I had a very, very good guard, very, very dangerous guard. I actually would compete a lot and I was finishing most of my matches from the guard. And for the last quite few years, I've been focusing on top game, weight distribution and pressure and guard passing and all those things. So now it's time for me to go back to the bottom. Actually, there was two years ago, I really focused on being on bottom cross side. Cross side escapes. And so I, what I would do is I stopped playing guard. I would, as soon as I would slap hands, I would just go and automatically sit and just lay to my back. And I would play guard like 20%, 30%, but I would basically let them pass quickly. So not put up too much of a fight, not be offensive at all, let them pass. And then as they started to pass, as they started to put some weight on me and try to grab me and control me, then I would start to see if I could get out. So I spent two years focused on just bottom cross side and understanding the details of how to escape bottom cross side against anyone holding you all the different grips, all the different controls that someone might use to hold you and pin you and hold you down, how to deal with all that. And so now it's time for me to go back to my guard. You know, now it's time, uh, I feel it's time for me to start developing my guard because again, I was playing top for so long and then I played bottom, but I wasn't playing an offensive game. I was playing more of a defense game, just understanding, developing a deeper understanding of cross-site escapes. So now I'm focusing my training on playing more open guard, being more dangerous from open guard and once I once I feel good with my open guard, I will definitely transition back to closed guard.
0: That's a very, very useful blueprint that I think the listeners are going to be able to incorporate into the strategy and reviews. Can you tell me a time that you wanted to quit and why?
1: Well, I had the passing of my best friend, Hawks, who was Hickson's son. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was very difficult for me emotionally. I had to take six months off and I didn't know. Just such a painful, unexpected thing for me. And we were training partners. And uh I guess I always imagined us going through the ranks together and competing. You got to do it like just kind of envisioned all these things together, right? Doing these things together. And so uh when that got crushed, I contemplated quitting. And uh it was actually my instructor, one of my instructors, Luis Heredia, the Mao, who is in Maui, one of Hickson's black belts, who convinced me to, to keep training. But um, yeah, that was one time. I had another time where I blew out both my ACLs in a tournament and I didn't walk for a year. I was able to rehab myself and I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to, um, I was very young at the time. I was 25 at the time and I didn't have insurance and I didn't have money to do the ACL surgeries. Mm -hmm. Um, So I still don't have an ACL in either knee.
0: What? Wow.
1: So I didn't know if I was going to be able to train and still be able to be effective with jiu-jitsu without having an ACL, without having an ACL in either knee. I figured out how to kind of train around it. Now, What positions my knees can be in, what positions they can't be in. I do a lot of strengthening for the muscles and all the muscles around it. So have you considered getting the surgery? no because it would just take me out for too long meaning if I was going to have the surgery because it's both knees what the doctors have told me is that I would have to operate on one knee and then Mm -hmm. usually what they do is they take either a cadaver Mm -hmm. which sometimes has a higher chance of your body not accepting it so it's a little iffy Um, they take a third of your patella so that weakens your patella Mm -hmm. or they take part of your hamstring which then weakens Mm -hmm. your hamstring so they have to take they either take the cadaver or they take something from your body which ends Mm -hmm weakening something else. And then what happens is they would do one knee and then it would be six to eighth month recovery on that knee. And then I would go into the other knee. So it would basically take me out of commission for a year and a half. And I just don't have, for me, my thought is if it's affecting my quality of life, I'll do the surgery, but I'm really big on trying to avoid surgery at all costs. Mm -hmm. So I'll do everything, like I'll do all the physical therapy, strength conditioning, everything I can to try to avoid surgery if I can. So yeah, stem cells, PRP, all of that stuff. I go down to, I have a a friend who has a hospital in Tijuana where they do stem cell therapy. So I've been going down there and doing stem cell treatments and doing treatments just to kind of keep everything healthy.
0: Your thoughts on the future of jujitsu?
1: I think that it's going to transition more towards no gi because I think no gi is a faster game than gi. I think things are going to be transitioning more to no gi. I think more big money is going to start to get behind it. You already see that with you know just this week Gordon announced a pretty crazy deal that he signed. It's a seven figure plus deal and uh, from my contacts and the people I've talked to the UFC is really pushing it and getting behind it. If for those people that were at ADCC that experience was absolutely insane. They filled up the Thomas and Mac arena. The Thomas and Mac holds about 17,000 people. They put in, I would say 13,000 to 14,000 people because the back part had to be, they didn't see anyone there because they had TV screens up. But to be able to put 13,000, 14,000 people in an arena 12 hours a day for two days straight is unheard of. I think that opened up a lot of people's eyes to seeing and understanding. And people came from all over the world for ADCC. I think the next one, they're planning on doing it at T-Mobile Arena. So if you want to talk about how big jujitsu is becoming you know, everyone's dream is they start packing arenas and that's going on. They're packing arenas. So I think Gordon Ryan is a big reason for that. So people should definitely thank him for what he's done for the sport. Love him or hate him, people want to see him. And so I definitely think he's pushed the sport to another level, which is incredible. I mean, it's always like this. You have these rare, unique individuals that come along from time to time Mm -hmm. that elevate the sport and push it to a different level. And um, again, love him or hate him, you know, Gordon Ryan is doing that for the sport. I mean, even where the UFC is looking at him and the UFC is putting money behind it and getting into it. Henry, where can we get more information about you and everything that's happening with you? My website is hiddenjujitsu.com. And that's where I have all of my instructionals. Instagram, I think it's uh, Henry Akins BJJ. Facebook. You can follow me on Facebook. But yeah, I have a YouTube channel and it's under Hidden Jiu-Jitsu or Henry Aikens Hidden Jiu-Jitsu. But uh, just look me up on YouTube if you can just like, follow, and subscribe to my uh, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Yeah, that helps.
0: You are listening to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Henry, thank you so much for your time. It's been a tremendous honor having you on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, you guys. See you next time.